Well, how many of you, how many of you like to play games? Okay, a bunch of you. All right. Uh, how many of you have heard of the game Nerds? Yes, okay, there's a few of you, okay. Uh, it is an intense, for those of you that don't know, it's an intense card game. It's best with four to six people, actually. Uh, it's a combination of solitaire and speed. And so, and it's been suggested, actually, that we have a nerds night uh, as a church. But here's the thing. I'm not so sure that that's such a good idea uh, because I love Jesus but I cuss a little, and I'm uh, just a little competitive, and I'm afraid that some of us wouldn't be friends again after uh, we played together, or you might question my salvation altogether. So now, some of you have heard me talk about another game that I play about regularly, and, or that I regularly play, and it's when I meet people for the first time, and, and this is the game. The game is, how long can I engage you in conversation before you find out what I do for a living? Uh, and the reason I play this game is because the moment they find out that I'm a pastor, uh, the entire dynamic uh, changes, and usually not for the good. Most uh, often, as soon as they find out, there's just a sudden awkwardness or there's a sudden tension. And many, I can tell, and I've talked to later, they begin to replay this tape in their mind of, okay, okay, what words have come out of my mouth over the last few minutes? And like, did, did, did I cuss? Did I drop an F-bomb? I just, like, did I say something you shouldn't say to a pastor? I don't know. Or suddenly they feel compelled to tell me about their church attendance record. It's like, what? what? Or they, I can tell by the look in their eyes or their body language that uh, they're, they're thinking, oh, wow, you're, you're one of those? Like, really? Like, we have nothing in common. Like, how quickly can I exit this conversation? And I know I'm not alone, because some of you play a similar game. Because you too have experienced a version of what I'm describing, haven't you? In fact, after service last week, a teacher came up to me and shared how he teaches in public school and how reluctant he is to bring up in class or with the students about having any connection to church or that he's a Christian, but why? Why are we tempted to play this game? Why is it that in the early 70s, 90% of American adults identified as Christian, but fast forward just two generations, and Pew Research shows that today the number has dropped to 65%. And if the trends continued, continue, it's forecast that in just two more generations, it'll drop to 35%, just two. Meanwhile, Americans who describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, or nuns, has risen from 17% to almost 30% in just over a decade. Why is it that a large increasing percentage of millennials and Gen Zs are walking away from or avoiding Christianity altogether? And the answer which we talked about last week, is quite simple. It's because Christianity is perfectly designed to get the results that we're getting. And, and the results that we're getting is largely because the term Christian in American culture, in current culture America, has far more negative connotation than positive. And in a vast majority of cases, it has nothing to do with Jesus which is why so many of us play a game of keeping our connection secret, at least until people get to know us a little better. Now, let me clarify something. Is there a percentage of people who walk away from church and faith because bottom line is they want to do what they want to do, when they want, 
when they want, with whomever they want, and they don't want anyone or any God, for that matter, telling them what to do or not do. Of course. I know that for a fact, not just because of the countless stories that I've heard from other people, but because for a good part of my life, that was me. I mean, the current country song by Jelly Roll, I only talk to God when I need a favor. (laughs) I need a favor. That could have been my life song. I mean, there was a period of my life where I just made the decision to put God in a box and put him on a shelf and keep him there. So, and then I proceeded to do what I wanted, when I wanted, with whom I wanted. And I did this for a few years and just added more regrettable decisions to my life until finally one day I looked in the mirror and I realized that my own worst enemy was looking back at me. And that life with a God in the box until I need a favor wasn't really working. And a lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about because that was you. That, that like me, you essentially behaved your way from God or church or from faith because it wasn't convenient. And then you came up with all kinds of excuses and reasons to justify it, but, but now you're back. So I get it. There's definitely a percentage in that category. There always has been, there always will be. But what I'm talking about is this is the huge percentage this generation and the next that are being and will be unnecessarily driven and kept away for truly illegitimate reasons, which includes a multi-century closet full of skeletons that we want to avoid talking about or we want to avoid any connection to because, well, that wasn't my generation or that wasn't my denomination or that was not my version of Christianity, all of which I addressed head on last week. So I'm not going to take time to recap. So as Zan said, if, if you missed last week, you really need to get back online, go online and watch that message. But I need you to understand, as I consider the next generation, as I consider your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, my new granddaughter, I want you to know that this is very personal to me. Because I have personally experienced what it's like to be driven away from church and Christianity. And for me, it was as a child by association. When I was eight, my dad and I moved to Wichita. I was looking fly. (laughs) Gotta love the early 80s, right? (laughs) Corduroy suit. Well, my dad and I moved from Wichita to Wisconsin, or from Wisconsin to Wichita. It was a very difficult experience. And soon after settling, we began attending a church here in town. We both liked it. So one morning, my dad took me by, by the hand, and he approached a group up front that included the pastor and some of the leaders in the church, and he told them that uh, he would love to serve, he would love to volunteer, and that his passion was music and kids. And I will tell you, as a church leader, anyone that comes and says their passion is music or kids, we are excited, okay? They, they were excited. But in the conversation, he had mentioned, my son and I just moved to town. And the pastor picked up on that. And eventually, he said, forgive me for asking, but how did your wife die? And my dad shared with him that he wasn't a widower, but divorced. And with that, the tenor of the whole conversation changed. And without any more questions, 
without any more attempt to gain understanding of our situation or our circumstances in a somber tone, the pastor looked at my dad and informed him with me standing there as a child that as a divorced person that he and I could attend, but that he would not be allowed to serve, certainly not in music or with children. And that combined with another situation that I won't go into was a tipping point for my dad. And as we left the building that day, walking to the car as he was holding my hand, he just said out loud, screw the church. And then for years, he wouldn't step foot in one for other than a wedding or a funeral. So for years, guess who else spent most of his growing up years not stepping foot into a church other than a wedding or a funeral? A young boy with intense ADHD, overwhelming insecurities, who was on the tail end of having lived powerlessly in an unhappy home and eventually dragged through the middle of an ugly divorce, a multi-state move, which included me being torn away from my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Miller, the only school teacher who ever got me and gave me hope as a student. That boy who needed hope, who needed healing, who needed community, who needed understanding and encouragement and stability, who more than ever needed to be assured that there was a good, loving God that could offer me a hope and a future. So you can see, I take this very personally because I've experienced, while I've experienced, many incredible blessings from Christians. I also know full well what it's like to be a victim of Christians and Christianity and the church. And my story is nothing compared to what some others have experienced. Now, having been a follower of Jesus for over 30 years, I totally understand the knee-jerk temptation to defend and to point out to all the good that Christians have accomplished, and I don't deny any of that for a second. But here's the problem. To the current generation, we sound like a wife beater who, after beating his wife, deflects guilt by either pointing out that her suffering is her fault or by pointing out that all the good that he does and how he puts a roof over her head and food on the table, so just ignore the bad. And from the moment a small human figures out their phalanges, they can start clicking and searching and find centuries of good work, amazing works of compassion and justice and magnificent scientific and medical and educational advances done under the banner of Christian. But guess what else they can find? All of the offenses and the injustices and even the horrors inflicted past and present done under the same banner, Christian. And if we have any hope of turning the tide and inspiring the next generation to embrace a prevailing faith, the first thing we need to do is own it, all of it, and say, I am sorry. We need to be like two other God followers, influencers of their time, who lived thousands of years ago, Daniel and Nehemiah, who in their times said, we and our ancestors have sinned. No qualifications, 
No caveats. No, but we did good here and we did good there. No, we got it wrong. We and our ancestors. And we are so very sorry. Or another God follower, Jeremiah, when he wrote, our ancestors sinned and are no more, and we bear their punishment. Much of what we are experiencing in the attitude towards Christianity was shaped by men and women, but mostly men, long before any of us were born. But it doesn't matter. We are having to live with the consequences, and by identifying as Christian, we are by default attaching ourselves to the whole of Christianity past, all of it the good, the bad, and the ugly. And before we are too harsh on some of those that came before us, let's be real. We don't have to go generations back. There has been enough done just within our generation to justify a large percentage of men and women and young people moving away from Christianity. So we would do well to learn from Jesus when he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First, take the plank out of your eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the, remove the speck from your brother's eye. So this series is about pulling the plank, or if you were here last year, the nail. We're going to use all the imagery. Uh, this, this should be top priority for every single one of you. For every single one of you who is convinced that there is more to this life than this life. Convinced that a man 2,000 years ago claimed to be sent by God to enable us to make peace with God in this life and the life to come. That you're convinced that that man claimed that he was the unique one, only way, truth, and life for this life and the life to come. And then to punctuate that claim, the documented evidence is overwhelming that he did in fact predict and pull off his own death and resurrection, giving us full confidence that he was in fact and is in fact the way to God. And if you actually believe all that, becoming defined by something greater than American Christianity should be a top priority because of the implications for you, everyone around you, and the next generation. And because I'm convinced that you did not sign up to be part of something that drives the next generation away from Jesus or God or the church. But that's exactly what is happening. And it is up to us to change it. But here's a big part of our problem, which we discovered last week, that the word Christian, that's only used three times in the New Testament, it was a derogatory or even in one case kind of a political term, like you fall in these different categories, but it was a term that people on the outside used to describe followers on the inside. And, and, but over time, followers of Jesus eventually embraced it somehow, and then they didn't mind dying as a Christian. But the problem with the word Christian is that it can mean anything you want. That is why, that is why there are Christians on both sides of every political issue. There are Christians who are Democrats, and there are Christians who are Republicans. Though for some of you, you would say that is not possible. You cannot call yourself a Christian and be, blind, be aligned with this political party or this politician, but you absolutely can because you can define Christian any way you want. 
There are Christians on both sides of every legal issue, every financial issue, both sides of everything we would consider a moral issue. It's why nations that are predominantly Christian can go to war with each other, even be the instigator. It's why Adolf Hitler could say, we tolerate no one in our ranks who attacks the ideas of Christianity. Our movement is Christian. It's why during the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement, you had churches on both sides because you can make Christian anything you want it to be. And when you open the New Testament, you can find nothing to conflict with your definition of Christian, but you sure can try and cherry pick and use it to bolster your definition of Christian, but it's not defined, and that's our problem. So last week, we actually opened the New Testament. We discovered that the original Jesus followers were referred to, actually initially, as followers of the way. That's our title, the forgotten way. But Jesus referred to his followers as something else, and the people that believed the message of Jesus referred to themselves or called themselves something else. What did they call themselves? Disciples. Now, the reason this word is problematic is because as long as you are a Christian, you can pretty much do and believe anything. But if you want to be a disciple, your whole existence becomes so clearly defined and it shakes your entire world and your entire experience as a follower of Jesus. So last week we opened the New Testament and we asked, okay, so what's a disciple? And to answer that, Jesus, Jesus says, here it is. If you forget everything else, to be my disciple, you don't have to have 10 commandments, just one, a new one. And this is the most important one. Now, I'm going to make you a little uncomfortable. And because before I go into this, I want to say something, especially to the men. Because men, when we get to the core of what we're talking about today, this is what we picture. As soon as we hear these words, they seem so passive and soft. This is what we picture. This isn't him. If you want to understand what Jesus meant by what he said, you need to watch what he did. Men, this is the picture we need to get into our minds. That the man who says these words was a 30-something-year-old guy who marched into a city knowing what lay ahead of him. That he was going to be arrested and tortured to the point that his body would have looked something... Is it not up there? Yeah, let's just leave that up there. I want it to be uncomfortable. It would look something like this. And then, then he would be crucified. Not for his wrongs, but for the wrongs of others. For the very people who would be his accusers, his torturers, his executioners. He would do it all for them and for your wrongs and for mine. And let's just be real. You wouldn't do that, and neither would I. This is a guy who grew up seeing rotting corpses on Roman crosses. This wasn't something he read about in a book. He saw it, he heard it, he smelled it, and he knew that to walk into Jerusalem meant that he would end up on a Roman cross, beaten and bloody and broken, and he did it anyways. And he had several opportunities in which he could have recanted what he said he believed and who he claimed to be, and he would have been set free. But he wouldn't do it. 
And he knew there would be no jury, no recourse, no eternity. He would be railroaded, tortured, and put to death. And men, he walked into the jaws of that alone. Because his closest friends, one betrayed him, the rest abandoned him. So before any of us is tempted to discount what he says as soft, or to make it smaller, or less monumental than what it really is. If you want to understand what Jesus meant, you watch what he did. You listened who said these words. So he gathers his guys together shortly before they all end up abandoning him. And he says, guys, if you forget everything else, don't forget this. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, as I have loved you, love one another. I thought it was it's what we believed. Yeah, you got to believe some stuff, but nobody can see what you believe. If you forget everything else, if you don't memorize any verses, just remember this. Here's how they're going to know. Not by what you believe and not, not even simply how you behave, but how well you love one another. And then 55 years later, uh, Jesus, after Jesus said this, John, who gave us the gospel of John, he's an old man. He's seen a lot. He saw or heard about Jerusalem being sacked. He heard about thousands and thousands of Jews being crucified outside the city, many by their own people. He knew that the temple had been destroyed once and for all. He heard about Peter arrested and taken to Rome and by tradition crucified upside down. He lives knowing that the Apostle Paul had been arrested and taken to Rome and then taken outside the city and beheaded for his faith. He's seen emperors come and go. He's seen the Roman Empire change. He's seen bloodshed like you and I can't even imagine. And at this point, all of the disciples, all of his closest friends are either dead or dispersed. He has no idea where they are. But for whatever reason, God has preserved his life, and now he's an old man. And he sits down to either write or dictate a letter to the followers of Jesus who have been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. He can write anything he wants, and here's what he writes. He writes, dear friends or dear beloved ones, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, the key way to know if somebody is a God person or a godly person, John says, is how well they love. Whoever does not love doesn't know God because God is love. Now, John is either lying or he is mistaken or the nature of God is love in his essence. Okay, John, I've got just a few questions. John, did you see what happened to Jerusalem? Yeah. How many friends have you lost? I lost count. You heard what happened to Peter? Yeah. And Paul? Yeah. You heard Matthew was burned at the stake? I heard that too. And God is love. Like, how can you believe that? Because, John says, this is how God showed his love. And this is so important. Among us. This is John, the John, saying, this wasn't something I read about. This happened among us. We saw it. I will never doubt the love of God because of what I saw. And this is how God showed his love among us that he sent his one and only son into the world, this broken, flawed, dark world, so that we might live not through what the world offers, but live through him. 
This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And what's amazing is He did it ahead of time with no guarantee we would ever respond. And a little pause. Us, our, loved us, sent for our sins. Us and our, that that means you. That means me. That means every person you're ever eyeball to eyeball with, that you interact with, that you cross paths with uh, in life or on social media, they are someone who God loves, that he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for. The student who sits next to you in class, that coworker at your job that drives you crazy, the store cashiers, your mother-in-law, seriously, she is an us or an our, uh, your boss, the president of your HOA, the, your teacher, the people you work with, the people that you pass every day, the people that cut you off in traffic, the people you cut off in traffic, uh, store cashiers, the waitress, the barista that gets your coffee, the customer service person, in person or over the phone that you finally get a human. So it's just, they are us or an hour. And John, all these years later, says, as dark as the world has become, I'm just as convinced as ever ever that Jesus was the Son of God and He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This little Greek word ought, it's like it's a financial term. It's saying there is a debt-debtor relationship between you and God and you and every single person that you meet, even people that are very different from you in how you think and how you live. So since God loved us, then what, John? We ought We ought to love one another, meaning since God so demonstrated this kind of love towards me, I owe it to God to love you. And since God so loved you, you owe it to God to love me, even when I'm hard to love. And every time you act unlovable, I'm tempted to to react in like kind. I go, no, I'm not going to choose how I show love to you based on whether or not I think you deserve it. I'm going to respond to you, and I'm going to love you because God chose to love me. Even when I was unlovable and am unlovable. It's like if you've ever gotten really good news, and you're just so pumped up, and you're so excited, and so filled with joy on the heels of it, your brother, your sister, your spouse, or one of your kids, or somebody at work, somebody does something like just wrong towards you. Uh, you know, they make a mistake, whatever. But you kind of like, hey, you know, it, it's no big deal. It's okay. Why? Because your thrill or your excitement related to this other thing has your joy level so high, you're just so happy, it just kind of overwhelms it. It's like, who cares? Like, life is good. Or remember as a kid, okay, some of us, I think a lot of us kind of thought this way, very strategic, manipulative, like as a kid, if you wanted something and you knew it was kind of an iffy proposal, what would you do? Well, you would wait until your parents were in a really good mood about something else before you made your ask. Why? Because you you knew chances were their good mood would overwhelm their good sense and you would get what you wanted. It's kind of like that. It's kind of like I'm so overwhelmed with joy and the thrill of God's love, oh my gosh, towards me, 
and what he's done on my behalf, Jesus and John would say, in light of that, in the joy that comes from that, I want you to love everyone who says they follow me in such a way that people on the outside would look and go, oh my gosh, look at the way they love. I want your whole community to live this. So we owe it to God as disciples, as followers of the way, to love one another. And Jesus would say, I want you to love in such a way that no one will ever say about my followers. Like what like one person said to me recently. I said, they said when they think of Christians, they think of a, a group of people who are cognitively dissonant, who cherry-pick beliefs and values that are convenient to them. And they expanded a little bit. For example, how Christians seem to enthusiastically speak out against LGBT plus and sexual sin, yet it's crickets when it comes to churches being filled with divorced and remarried people, in spite of the fact that Jesus himself had some very direct words in three of the Gospels about that. So they ask the fair questions. Why aren't Christians equally as bothered by that? This person went on. They perceive Christians as judgmental, harmful, dogmatic, deeply lacking empathy for those who aren't basically just like themselves, able, unable to be introspective, and weaponizing their beliefs. And this person is not alone. Now, I don't know about you. I want this to go away. I want this to be eradicated and erased from the human experience. Should I stay Christian? There's a sense, and maybe which all of us need to quit Christianity and embrace the forgotten way, and once again become disciples. Because people aren't quitting because, you know, they just love me way too much. Just way too much unconditional sacrificial love. So irritating. I mean, they're just like Jesus. Like, she just forgave me. He just pardoned me. They don't hold it against me. Like, they, they know about my past, but it's it just seems to be like it's a non-issue. I just don't think people are inclined to quit that. I mean, can you imagine if suddenly, like I said last week, for just a week to 10 days, just for a month, what if for just a year we had no more Christianity, we're going to be disciples for a year, and then we can get back to our quarrelsome, hostile ways, okay? But but see, this is counterintuitive, and here's how I know this. In fact, because last week, just like most weeks, you know, we give you a big idea, and I give you guys, here's something you can actually leave here and do with, and I know reality, okay? Uh, so last week, the challenge was for just 10 days, so today would be like day six or seven, to decide before I speak or act or react in every situation, just pause and ask, in light of what Jesus has done for me, what does love require of me? And to do that for 10 days in a row. Now, to be honest, Raise your hand. How many of you have done that for the past six or seven days? Okay. I, I, I'm not trying to shame you. We've got one person doing a happy dance. All the rest of you, sinners. So <laughs> I'm not trying to shame you. I fail at this all the time, and I have it tattooed on my arm to remind me. It's like my permanent post-it. My point is this. What I'm talking about, and we, again, we think warm, fuzzy, whatever, it's not natural. It does not come naturally. 
What is natural is to be self-centered and self-interested. And I feel like I'm the poster child. But it's like anything else worthwhile. It requires continued practice because the love of Christ that is described in the New Testament, it rises way above feeling. It's decision. I'm choosing to show you love. But can you imagine what would happen in a family, in your neighborhood, in our community, in this city, in our culture, in our world? I'll tell you what will happen because it happened before. But I'll tell you about it in two Sundays. You really don't want to miss the two weeks following our volunteer appreciation break next Sunday. And especially for those of you who have been wondering or even feeling a little bit nervous of Chad, so are you saying that all we have to do is just love one another and have a big love fest, and it doesn't matter what anyone does, and we just do what we want, when we want, with whoever we want, and whom, are there are no shouts and shout nots and like no rules? You will for sure want to be here the three weeks after that. In fact, let's just do this, and maybe you'll never do it again. For just this series of talks, you commit to not miss a single one. And if you have to miss a weekend, that you listen that same week online. Because our problem and our struggle is that most of us have been so ingrained to settle for Christian or settle for our brand of Christianity that it's time for us to leave that behind. But it's going to take intentionality. It's going to take time. But this is the time. This is our time. And for our sake, for the sake of the next generation, it's time for us to embrace the forgotten way and become disciples And if we do, I am convinced, I am convinced that we, we, literally we, you in the room, you online, that we literally can change the tide and begin to turn more people towards God, towards Jesus, towards His church, and that people will feel inspired and they will feel drawn towards Jesus and his community because of how we treat one another and everyone else. The way, it's like the way they treat me and others, there's just something that draws me in. The strange, strange thing about being around these Jesus followers is sometimes I do feel guilty because I'm not that honest. I mean, she messed up, and before I could even go down there to see her, like, she's in my, in my office she's telling me what, you know, here, I messed up. I mean, he's so honest. He came to me. He showed me his mistake. I would have never caught it. I could kind of feel a little guilty because nobody does. I wouldn't have done that. Or, you know, I hear them talk about their relationships. I watch how these couples treat one another. Oh, my gosh. Like, I don't do relationship like that. I mean, they're husbands and wives. It's like they're both fighting for their marriage. I don't do that in my marriage or I didn't do that in my marriage. And sometimes when I'm around these people, I feel kind of guilty, but I don't feel condemned. You see, that's how most of us came to faith, isn't it? Because we were in a relationship with someone or we met some people like that, people who demonstrated an inspiring and even a rational love or we met a community like that, we were drawn in. But here's why that doesn't happen as much as it should. John would say to us, you give, you gave up your leverage in culture and in society by trying to power up. 
You gave up your leverage and culture in society by going the route of boycott and wrapping your arms around political parties or a politician and criticizing those who don't. And you gave up your leverage when you opted for anything other than as I have loved you. Love one another kind of love. So here's what I want you to think about and act on this week, because now you know I'm going to ask. It will sound somewhat like a repeat of last week, but we're trying to change, trying to make a shift from a long-held approach that doesn't happen overnight, but it's this. What would it look like for you to love the people around you in your personal world as Jesus loved you this week? What does that look like in your schools? What does that look like in your current job? Maybe in the job that you currently kind of hate. What does it look like for you in the marketplace? What does it look like in your marriage? I mean, your marriage could be hanging on by a thread. It could be bad. What would it look like to decide, you know what? I'm going to love my wife like Christ loved me. And men, to know what Jesus meant, we look at what Jesus did. And then he says, now men, love your wives as I have loved you. And ladies, to decide, I'm going to love my husband not based on whether or not I think he deserves it, but because of the way God loved me, and I'm going to love my children, do you know what a difference this would make? Do you understand, do you truly understand the difference that you as an individual could make on the lives of the people around you? If you decided to make this kind of selfless, Jesus-defined kind of love the defining characteristic of your life, do you know if we, don't, if we don't make this a priority, if we don't lean into God and one another and get this right, it doesn't really matter what else we do. Do you truly comprehend what's at stake? Because if you're a Christ follower, we have a decision to make. We are either going to be a part of the group that passively or actively proves the projections correct in driving the next generation away because we continue a propagated, made-up, undefined religion. Or we will say, enough is enough. I'm done with just Christian. I'm going to be a follower who follows in such a way that it inspires more people to become followers. I'm going to be a disciple. I'm going to become a disciple who inspires more people to become disciples. I'm deciding I am going to love because God loved me. Let's just start there and focus on that and watch how it changes each of our little worlds and the worlds of those in our lives with us. And then in two weeks, we're going to talk about what I believe has been one of the biggest deterrents of people from God and faith. And that is how are we supposed to react to, act towards, and treat those who are outside the faith, even those who reject Christianity or Jesus. And if you have anyone in your life who has been turned off by or hurt by Christians or the church like I was, like some of you have been, like people you know, some more than others, you need to reach out to the people in your life you need to offer to buy them lunch if they will come sit with you. If you can't afford it, you make the invite. We will cover the tab. I am not joking about that. This is that important. Let me pray for us. Invite the band up. Father, I am, I am so sorry for all the ways that we get it wrong on a day-to-day -day basis.
I mean, you are, you are perfect. And Father, we are we're so flawed, and we try our best. But God, I, I just acknowledge that trying is not enough. We have to have your help. Jesus described the helper, the Holy Spirit, that you would help us, that we don't just read these words and we just now have another law that we need to follow. But it's, it's singular and you partner with us. So Father, I pray for every single one of us that you open our eyes to those people in our life, the areas of our life where it's time for us to, to approach a very different way take a very different approach of how we react and act towards people in all these different environments. But Father, we, we can't do it without your help, without the support and encouragement of one another as a community. Please help us to get this right. Please help us to be the kind of men and women that the next generation, these children that are coming up behind us, they will be inspired by how we live out our faith in you. God, make us the ones that get to help turn the tide where we see something dramatic happen in our, not just in this city, but in our world, where the tide begins to turn back and people turning to you. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.